Welcome once again to Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End Chat. Everything about Glasgow's West End. My name's Jim Byrne and the Pat in the title is Pat Byrne. And this is episode 37. Uh, in this episode I interview Gordon Ross of IndyCar Gordon Ross. Uh, Gordon is a video blogger, I think that's what you call it. And he... Uh, video blogs about Scottish independence and he's I think probably correct in saying he's the most popular uh, I came across him a few years ago now and I listen to his his video blog regularly and he's also always very insightful and always saying things ahead of the curve and of course he's a West Ender so I thought uh, I need to get Gordon on here and have a chat with him and find out how he got to where he is today. Now, just to whet your appetite, I've, as part of Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End podcast, I've now interviewed quite a few people. And what I find incredible, all of, all of them, is that they've all got stories that you would never in a million years think you know, that, that that was their background or that's the sort of stuff they did when they were young or that was their talent or that's their their path to where you where they where they are today. And Gordon is up there with probably the most fascinating uh, path that anybody's taken to becoming a well his uh, day job as uh, as a driving instructor and, you know, as I say, every day telling us all about Scottish independence and uh, his journey is what is definitely the most fascinating of all the people I've interviewed uh, and that includes interviewing Eva Bolander who's our Lord Provost who you will uh, find interesting to know as a bagpiper from Sweden and it includes the story from Francesca, Francesca Waddle who's our West End fashion illustrator incredibly successful one uh, who had a very circuitous route to our current success and uh, many bumps in the road. Anyway, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this this interview. Now, what I've got in this uh, podcast is an edited, edited version. We, we chatted for quite a wee while. But for those that uh, like their interviews unedited, uh, what I'll maybe do is, or, or, or what I will do, is put out an unedited version of it maybe in the next couple of days uh, where we we chat freely about our views on uh, independence and talk about everything from the BBC to, I don't know, the newspapers and everything in between. So I've tried to cut out for this particular podcast as much of my ranting as possible uh, so that you've just got Gordon's story. As usual, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please subscribe if you've got any questions for us, please get in touch, uh, ideally through Pat's uh, Twitter at Glasgow, Glasgow's West End. And if you fancy giving us a pat on the back, please give us the five stars and please, you know, click something on your, your player to say that you're enjoying it. Okay, let's get over to the usual place, which is uh, my living room, and have a chat with Gordon. Podcast. You're welcome. Uh, it's nice to be here. Why don't you just start by instead of me telling the listeners who you are, if you tell me who you are and what you do. I'll try and remember. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, well, my name's Gordon Ross. I'm a 57-year-old driving instructor from the oh, West End. Right, OK. That, that's my day job. That's my Clark Kent identity. Um, the rest of the time, uh, I'm known for a video blog called IndyCar with Gordon Ross, right, okay. which uh, one or two of your listeners might have heard of. Yeah, and that's that's how I came across you, uh, uh, on the, probably on the Facebook, I would imagine. Uh, yes, fa- Facebook's where everything really started to go uh, um, for, for the video blog when it started. So I'm, you know, I imagine people that have heard this podcast before know I'm an independent supporter. <laughs> and Congratulations. Prob- probably, probably watched your videos. Uh, way back since you started them 
Or maybe I missed it. Maybe I didn't become aware I, of them. I've been doing it a long time. Yeah. Uh, longer than people think. Right, okay, so, well, that's probably, that's, that's, that's probably the case. I probably jumped in. It started uh, 2015. The early right. part of 2015 in May, yeah. I think it was 2015. Right, right. So we've got a good time now. Yeah, I don't know if I was listening at that point, I'm not sure. Probably weren't. Yeah. The, the, the audience figures weren't that huge at that right. point. Okay. Okay, well, what I want to do is sort of investigate to a certain extent how you ended up doing what you're doing. I mean, because okay. you've got quite a big audience now, I so think. It seems, from, yes. From, <laughs> uh, from watching and from kind of seeing the. You know, just the, the number of people that are banging away, typing their comments and clicking the, the buttons that he likes and the loves yeah. and all that kind of stuff. You clearly get an audience. So I, want, I just want to sort of look at how you, what you, you know, in terms of your thinking, what, what in your background kind of led you to be doing what you're doing? So right? I mean, how did how did a driving instructor end up? Yeah, yeah. Television block. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so the normally I would. All the way back. <laughs> well, well, if I take it from age fifteen, right? right let's take okay. it from there. It's a long time ago, right? Right. My, I come from a big family. I was born in the West End. Right, you're born in the West but, End, right? But okay. the family moved out almost immediately when yeah. I was three, and my father took us down to live in Fairley, down near Largs on the Clyde Coast, oh, wee right, tiny okay. fishing village, right, okay. just on the seaside, and I grew up there. So I grew up by the sea, and that was the first thing. So I had a great love of the sea, right, from right. the beginning. And my dad was a great sailing man. So he was one of the first people who, um, who got what was known as a day a day skipper's ticket. In other words, he was one of the first people to train as an actual yachtsman with the right. Yachting Association when okay. it first started. So he was a, a real sailing nut, right. right? And he got me interested in sailing, so I, I ended up loving sailing as well. We had a number of different boats. We right, to, okay, that's interesting. To, we didn't go on holidays in the summer. We went cruising up the Western Isles right. in the summer, rain or shine, you know. Right. It doesn't matter what the weather was, you know. So we, we was just sleeping in the boat right. on all weathers, you know, encased in midges and <laughs> whatever else was going at the sure, time. Okay. So, yeah, I had a, a love of the sea, and uh, out of that came a sort of uh, a, a prototype version of a sort of green activist, if you like, at 15. I was beginning to develop some really strong environmentalist tendencies right, at that okay, age. Okay. My mother was also a great activist for, um, I suppose, she was one of the very first green activists there were. Right, right. She, she led the campaign to prevent the Hunterston War Terminal being built right, on the okay. sands at Hunterston. There's huge sands used to be out there was cockle beds and uh, yeah. you know, the whole works. So it was she was the one who started the sort of political activist in me, got right, me interested. Right. What age were you then? Uh, probably would have been about nine or ten. Right, that's it was around the time of the moon landings, 1969. Right. Yeah, well, I've seen, seen them. So I grew up in a space <laughs> race as well, and I was a space nut, and I would love right. science and rocks. Right, okay. So I, I was, it was a very mixed kind of uh, kid I was. There were a lot of things going on at the time which mm. affected the way I thought about the world. <clears throat> but one of the first things I, I, I thought about as a kid was the fact that there was so much moving water in front of the house. You know, there was right. trillions of tons of sea moving up and down with the tide right. every single day. Okay. And I'm thinking, there must be an awful lot of energy in that water, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, when I was about 15, uh, I did a bit of investigating. I was a bit of a geek at mm -hmm. school. So I did some research on the tidal flows. I got into the 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 navigation charts and right. the, the right. uh, Reed's Nautical Almanac, which told you what speed the tides ran at at different times of the years in different places. And that worked out that there was a way that you could use the entire Clyde estuary as a massive power station if you had lots of turbines, hundreds of them in different places around uh -huh. the estuary and you could phase them in and out. Right. Because at that time, A, there weren't any tide turbines and B, there was no computers to mesh them all together in a network. There was no internet. <laughs> right. no. Wait, did you say you were again now? You, oh, you... but this time I was about 15. Right, what age are you now? I know you're 57 now. Right, okay, so you're one year older than me. Right, well, <laughs> just a wee bit older than you. Yeah. So all this led me to become quite a, a, an environmental, not just a campaigner, but I was yeah. interested in designing things. I was okay. an engineer, a tinkerer, right. and 
when I was at school, I designed a yacht sail, which was very efficient. Right. And my uh, technical teacher, a chap called Ian Ross, said he put it into a competition, right. a school's competition. Mm -hmm. He said, you should enter this. So we put an entry in. I didn't think we'd get anywhere with it. And six months later, I got a phone call. Mm -hmm. I was in the village shop at the time, and the phone rang behind the counter and I said, for you. I mean, I'm, you know, 15 year old kid, I'm in buying a packet of crisps right. and there's a phone call for me in the local shop. Right, right. Can you imagine, that was a bit of a weird event. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, my mum had phoned the shop to say right. that Somebody. General Electric Company who sponsored the thing had phoned up to say I'd won. Ah, right. And it was a National Design Award, so it was a big deal. Right. And the prize was um, a trip to London, Buckingham Palace, get the award from the Duke of Edinburgh. Right. And then into the Tomorrow's World Studios at the oh, UC right. Television Centre to do a little demonstration of this mm -hmm. device and all the rest of it. And that kind of was what launched my career into sail design, yachting, boating, mm -hmm. hang glider designs. Mm -hmm. I did all kinds of different types of jobs right. working with basically wind power right, of all okay. kinds. Wind sports, so windsurfing, right. hang gliding, okay. you name it. I, I designed things for it. Right. So, so what was that, a career you had uh, yeah, doing quite, that? Yeah, quite a long career. Right. You know, I left home at 16. Right. And uh, I spent three years in Manchester working for a company that built hang gliders. Right. Like these big kites, you know. Goodness me. 10 right. meter wingspan right. things. And that was my, uh, I suppose my apprenticeship as an engineer was right. doing that. Because right. I had to learn to fly, that was part of the job. Okay. So I got a love of flying as well, as a love of sailing. So, so it's, what age was that you said you started doing that? Uh, 16. 16, so at 16 years of age you're away designing hang gliders. My God, that's pretty weird. <laughs> I was incredibly lucky that, I, I, my mother would tell you this, as even as a child I used to write uh -huh. to very famous people, unknown right. to my family. Right. Okay. I would write to them and ask them questions, yeah. or ask them where I could get things. Mm -hmm. You know, I was writing to the Ministry of Defence asking for samples of yeah. rocket fuel yeah. and things like that when I was 11. It's interesting you should say that because, I mean, That's I have like Sheldon Cooper, you know. <laughs> quite a lot of people for this podcast. And uh, I'm always interested in this idea of confidence and the ability to do th to be confident enough to do exactly what you did there. I don't which, know if it's confidence. I think it's right. a, a lack of awareness of boundaries. Right, OK. okay. <laughs> in my case, probably. Right, okay. Okay. I didn't see boundaries right. at, at that age. I still don't see yeah. them, actually. So but much. a lot of people wouldn't think, you know, at 15 years of age, uh, I will write a letter to whoever, some important person, yeah. uh, because I've got something to say. <laughs> and expect them to re reply. They just don't think about it, you know. But, but people do reply. Right. I, somewhere in the depths yeah. of my drawer at home, I have a letter from um, uh, Michael Heseltine. Right. Do you okay. remember Michael Heseltine? Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Mrs. Satchel's right hand man, yeah, yeah. Minister of Defence at one point. Right. Uh, and when I was about 18, I wrote a, a spoof letter to him. Mm -hmm saying that uh, I was writing on behalf of my old mother who really loved him and thought he was very handsome. You know, right. in that tank that she saw a picture of in the sun. Right. And uh, could he please send her an autograph picture so that she could nail him up on the wall alongside all her other heroes. And I listed people like Buddy Holly right. and all sorts of other people who'd been assassinated, murdered or generally mangled in some kind of accident. Right, okay. And I thought he's bound to see through this as a send-up. Right. Nope. I got a beautiful letter back from mm -hmm. Michael Heseltine. As if I, you know, in good faith, as though I had really asked this, with a complete colour-side photograph, which right. I've still got somewhere. Right, right. And I thought, that was amazing. You know, the, the, they, they looked at that letter and didn't see any of the of the humour in it. And yeah. they didn't see or didn't clock that it was in any way a wind-up. Although that um, does tell us a wee bit about your personality, I would say. <laughs> that, that's the kind of thing I would do, though, right. you know? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not a great respecter of, you know, leaders and yeah. political figures. No, I mean, I'm not particularly uh, good with bosses and people, you know, I mean, having worked for myself for most of my yeah. life uh, and worked in institutions where you more or less work for yourself because I worked as a lecturer for a while, you know, uh -huh. which is uh, well, Caledonian. Come, I'll, I'll, I'll come to something yeah. similar in a minute. Yeah. I, I ended up doing yeah. something very similar right. to that. Right. 
And after I had been a sale designer, a sale maker, there was the recession in the 1980s. Right. right. There was hardly any jobs anywhere. Yeah, I remember. Finding that. a job meant trudging around yeah. different places. And I actually had to go, I came back to Scotland at one point because there was nothing, even in England. Right. And I came back to live at home for a wee while. Uh, but while I was there, while I was back at home, uh, my family moved into a place in Largs, a smaller place. And uh, I was basically spinning my wheels with nothing to do. You know, I was signing on like a lot uh-huh. of young people at that time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, into the local library came a group called Astra, and they were putting on a, a space flight exhibition. This was a small Scottish space flight society in the local library at Largs. And they brought with them this huge model of a space plane. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a space plane design I'd never seen before, I'd never heard of it before. And it was a thing called a wave rider, and it looks like a, a big triangular block, like a, a sort of lengthy pyramid, uh, but the whole underside. Mm-hmm. And I said, what is that? And they said, well, that's a re-entry plane called the wave rider. It was designed at Glasgow University in the 50s. And I said, oh, does it, does it fly? Has anybody tested it? No, no, nobody ever tested it. It was only ever theoretical. We built mm-hmm. the model just to show people what it might look like. Right, OK. I said, I'd like to actually build one of these and see if we can get it to fly. Right. So I said, how much is it to join your society? So I said, it was about a tenner or something. So I joined, I joined Astra and started a programme to look at this space plane design from the 50s. So we did all the research from the Glasgow University days and figured out this thing actually would work. It was a hypersonic glider. Right. This thing would fly at Mach 10. It was right. extremely fast. Right. A very unusual method of flying using the shockwave beneath the plane to okay. support it. Okay. So we needed to get this tested. And I had a friend uh, at the time we flew model rockets together down in England who built sounding rockets. I said, have you got anything big enough that we could test this on? They said, yeah, we've got a sounding rocket that will do you know, 25 miles straight up. I said, well, could we put a steel model on that? and test it and see if it actually will go, like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. So we started to build this thing, and uh, somebody in the group, we never found out who it was, must have been working for the Ministry of Defence. Right. Because we got a call to offer us the use of a military wind tunnel at, at RAF Shrivenham in England, which is a highly secret military establishments, they test missiles. Right. <laughs> but this was a supersonic wind tunnel, and we'd never get access to that, not even in a university. It's mm-hmm. so powerful, they don't exist really in universities. We had that for a weekend. Yeah, so somebody thought there might be a military use yeah. for this thing. I think they, were, they must have thought, the well, these guys, guys might be onto something here. <laughs> well, the weird yeah. thing is that um, the end up of this was in 1988, 89, we ended up giving the team ended up going to Washington to give a, a presentation at a symposium at NASA right. on this exact subject of how to control these hypersonic wave riding craft, and there was other groups from America, Russia there as well. Martin Lockheed Martin had a team there, right. and they were showing a great interest in this thing, and I thought. I bet they want to do something nasty with it, like a yeah. missile. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what they've done with it. Right. It okay. is now one of part of the American military establishment. Oh, right. Might. It's a method of delivering a nuclear weapon from orbit oh, right. to any point on the planet, and no other missile can shoot it down because this thing can, can go too fast. Bank and turn faster than any other missile. Right. The Russians have got one as well. Right. Okay. So the technology that that, that had led to another thing that we did, which was um, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory asked me if we could design one to deliver a space probe to the sun. But it had to turn a couple of corners on the way mm-hmm. through the atmosphere of Venus and then the atmosphere of Mars in order to lose enough energy to get close enough to the sun. So we ended up designing a Mach, a Mach number 125 version of this. You're talking about hitting the atmosphere at oh, don't know, 22,000 miles per hour and flying through the atmosphere and then coming back out of it at a different angle in a different direction. Right. And 
we needed to figure out whether the performance was good enough to do that manoeuvre. So we say we needed to figure out. I mean, who who's we in this particular? Myself uh, and two my my two collaborators, uh, a guy called John Bonsor, who I believe is still living down in New Hampshire, mm. and Duncan Lunan, who is a now a science writer. And are people paying you to do this at this point? No, no, you're just still doing it on your own back. Did it for did it for the just the pure pleasure of right. seeing if it would work. Right. Okay. Uh, so we had the head of the mission over to stay with us right. to look at the numbers yeah. and he said it looks like it could do it but eventually the mission plan was changed a few years later so they didn't need to use the slingshot idea anymore they right. changed it right. uh, so that idea was dropped but we had proved that the performance was there mm-hmm. and this sort of all the time we're doing these kinds of things we're all unemployed yeah right okay. and the guys from JPL used to say to us why are you guys unemployed in a country as wealthy as Scotland, which should have its own space programme, yeah. why are you guggling around as amateurs doing this? Mm-hmm. I said, because nobody will pay us to do it. There's no interest in it. They're mm-hmm. not interested in building anything, but maybe the communication satellites. They have no interest in developing anything other than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the reason. That's part of the problem. That's one of the things that got me more politically mm-hmm. active, was the fact that I knew there weren't any opportunities for people doing these sorts of things here. They would have to go down to, you know, the Royal Aircraft Establishment Farnborough or, mm-hmm. or over to the States mm-hmm. uh, to work for NASA or JPL or, or to work in Europe at ESA. Mm-hmm. So I joined the European Space Agency's youth programme by this time, which was called Youth in Space, mm-hmm. which was for people under the age of 25 who were young engineers or working on, you know, and do you, you didn't have an academic background, you, no. you just had a, an interest, personal interest and a talent for it? I was, was yeah, largely self-taught, right. but I could do the maths um, right. and the physics to get it done. And why were you not steered towards the kind of academic...? Uh... My parents probably would have wanted me to do that. Right. I, I was more drawn to the design aspects, more to mm. the sort of artistic side of it. Yeah. Uh, and. As a result of that, they, they said, well, why don't you go to art school? Right. But at the time, I didn't know what art school would mean, what right. I could do there. Right. And at the time, the kind of courses that I would have wanted didn't exist. But the weird thing is, or the most ironic thing of all, was I ended up working for the art school for 17 years right. in product design and engineering. And that 17 years of my life was well spent. Right. Okay. But again, I was training young design engineers for jobs that didn't exist in Scotland, mm-hmm. knowing that they would have to emigrate, and that again started to annoy me. And this is where, this is where my political right. views began to develop. Was this later on, or...? No. Goodness me. That's all right. I'll just find out where this is. Hello? Let's <laughs> not find out. That would be, that would be poor manners, so I'm not bothered doing that. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, anyways, no, the, the, the problem was that I began to see that no matter how many people we trained mm-hmm. to do these kinds of jobs to create new products, new car designs, new aircraft, yeah. new medical equipment, there was no actual jobs building stuff no. like that in Scotland anymore. No, that's right. So when you're doing this, you're at, what art school was that? Glasgow School of Art. That's the Glasgow School of Art. And is that later on in your... Yes, yeah, I started working at the art school in 87, 88, right. Right. just after I got married. Right, so how did you get there? How did you...? Applied for a job. Right, so... They you... were looking for, at the time, a technical assistant in the Department of Product and Interior Design. They were right. looking for somebody who was a hands-on sort of engineer, woodworker, multitasker, right. could work a lot of different equipment. Right, so somebody was... That was and, really in some sense, of support. Yeah, and also or? somebody had a lot of knowledge of production, how right. to build things right, right. in real life, how factories would make things. Right, so okay. that, that's where my expertise came from. Okay. So they employed me, gave me some more training, and I kind of worked my way up from a, you know, a junior, right. if you like, technician up to being senior technician in charge okay. of the workshop. And from there, I ended up being a trade union rep. Right. No, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of interested. specialist as well. And this notion that you didn't go to university and learn these things or go to college, because uh, that's the normal route for somebody who's talented. You know. Well, if they wanted to do that, yeah. Yeah. 
wasn't what I wanted to do. No, but even to get the job that you got there, it seems to me that there's not that many places that would employ you unless you've got qualifications. Well, the thing is, none of the things that were achieved in those projects would have happened had it been at university, because it would never no. have taken them on. I know, yeah, I mean, I can, see, I mean. That. I can see that. So although they, although they were limited in what we could do yeah. in terms of cash and effort and manpower and equipment, yeah. um, we, always, we used to cannibalise things to yeah. make test equipment. But you must have been a very good salesman as well. <laughs> good at talking. <laughs> well, probably good at talking. Yeah. Good, at, good at selling yourself um, to folk. Anyway, I became a driving instructor in 2004 mm-hmm. because I, I'd had an accident when damaged my back damaged my spine quite badly, right. uh, which I still have problems with, and it meant that the physical nature of the job in the art, in the art school workshops right. was getting too painful to do. Right. Okay. And uh, I don't know. I, I wanted to keep teaching, and I, I like teaching sort of one to one. Right. And because the higher education system became very much crammed like a sausage machine, they put more and more people through university less and less time with each individual student. So my job started to feel like I was really just letting them educate themselves Mm -hmm. and I didn't have much role in it anymore. It was kind of disappointing. And it was high stress as well at the time. Well, working in education is very stressful. No, driving instructing is a different type of stress Mm -hmm. because you manage the stress level yourself. You, Mm -hmm. You decide how difficult or easy the job will be. Yeah. Because it's you who decides the pace of the learning, and right. you judge the, yeah. the student. And so, so when did you leave the the you know, the app school job? Two thousand four. Right. So you've done that since eighty seven. Since eighty seven, right? That's quite yeah, a wee seventeen while, isn't it? years. Right. Okay. That's quite a wee while. So. Uh, it was good fun. I enjoyed my time at the art school. Right. Right. Um, I was shocked when it when it caught fire the first time, and literally, absolutely gobsmacked when it bumped to the ground again. Yeah. I could not believe that. I can believe I yeah. Um Particularly yeah. as I had been one of the people who did the original fire assessments on that building. All oh, right, right. And we warned them, yeah. repeatedly warned them that they must get a sprinkler system in. Right. They must close up the wooden vent system that right. led the warm air from the boiler room. Right. They never listened. Yeah, I mean, I remember when they went fire for the second time and I came up on my Facebook or my Twitter and I... I didn't, it didn't, it didn't register, register that no. this was actually happening now. I, it, I thought when I saw it, I was seeing an old exactly. post. Exactly, that's what I thought. I think, no, why are they, why are they posting that? That happened months yeah. ago. It's not like, it's like <laughs> years ago. striking twice. I couldn't believe that it happened again. Yeah. And not only that, but how severe it was and how basically the whole place yeah. was decimated, you know. It's a yeah. shock. Um, it's a, a great shame. Probably yeah. one of the greatest treasures. Well, see, I, I know the, the art school quite well. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, people have fed up with me saying this because I've probably mentioned it on the podcast before. I was at Glasgow School of Art when I was 13 because uh-huh. I have an artistic bent, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> so I won a competition when I was 13, hey, you know, yeah. which meant, which got my year of art school Excellent. weekend training. Uh-huh. So, so I was pretty familiar with the art school having yeah. been there. And also I... Because I'm interested in that, I go to all the exhibitions every year. You know, go to all the degree shows. Go to all the degree shows. I chat to all the students. Yeah. Uh, so I know people, you know, and I'm, I'm familiar in it all the time. So it's kind of hard to take when these things happen. You know, it's just kind of such. It's, a, like, it's almost it's like a bereavement. Yeah, you know? it's like the family house yeah, is burnt down. Exactly. And it's not there to go back to anymore. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, this, you might agree or disagree, but then the, when they built that monstrosity across the road from it... The Shona Reed Cube. Yeah. Yes, it's hideous, isn't it? Oh, my God! Oh. I know. Oh. <laughs> involving architects is a no-no with me. I, I, I don't have a great deal of time for, for architects, especially not the ones who, who designed that thing. Yeah. But uh, I had a very happy time in the art yeah. school. Probably some of the best working years right. of my life. Okay. Um, now, though, to sort of bring this up to where we are now, the uh-huh. reason I got involved so much in, in the video blogging was, was largely by accident, actually, because in 2013, I had started blogging uh-huh. in, in favour of independence. Right, okay. And I switched from Twitter to Facebook I found Twitter far too constricting. Right. Basically, Twitter's just like a shouting match. Right. 
you don't have a chance to really put any kind of right. cogent points together okay. and debate anything. There's not enough words available. Yeah. So I moved to Facebook and started yeah. uh, posting there. But you've jumped to the side, you know, how did you become, I mean, all of a sudden you're a... How did I become an independence <laughs> yeah. supporter? Yeah. Because I always had been, I right. just had not identified as that. Right. I had always known that there was a huge problem and there was something wrong with the country. Right. And what was wrong with it was that we weren't running it. Right. We couldn't control what industries were here. We couldn't right. build new green industries here. Yeah. We couldn't have a space industry here. Yeah. We couldn't have... You were saying earlier on, the, before we turned this on... Industry, all, all these things that were shut down yeah. by... Westminster government, we have no control over any of it. Yeah. And if you wanted a good job in in my field in design or engineering, you have to leave the country. Right. And that's wrong. That yeah. was that was a fundamental thing that drove me towards independence in the first place. Not the only yeah. thing, but yeah. one of the most powerful things. Tenement uh Political involvement. You were saying that you were a member of the Labour Party prior to that. I was, like, yes. And not I joined the Labour Party um when I entered the art school, because I joined the union right, first okay. of all, right. I got involved in union activities right, a okay. bit. Right. I was very interested in safety because I was dealing with a lot of machinery yeah. and equipment. Right, and right. Um, so when they were asking for volunteers to train as union, as TUC safety reps, I right. jumped at it. Okay. Did the TUC training, became a TUC safety rep. So it meant I got to sit on the health and safety board right. meetings of the art school and I got to give them advice and reports and mm -hmm. ways to improve things for the rest of the staff and the students. Right. Some things they actioned, some things they didn't. But we had a lot of power and we could investigate accidents, we could make recommendations. Uh, and that was a worthwhile thing. Mm -hmm. I also managed to get um, first aid training in that as well and fire assessment training too. Right. Well, all of which was kind of feeding into this business of um, yeah. representing the interests of people working there to keep them safe. And what, as has <laughs> now turned out to be a very fire-prone <laughs> workplace, <laughs> right? That's for sure. <laughs> for so, sure. Um, as I say, I had a good time in the art school, but I, I was... I've been unhappy about the way Scotland was being run. Would you say, are you, like, politically active? In the traditional sense of the word, were you a left-wing, yes. uh, socialist, Labour I, I would identify member. as a socialist green, right? but I'm, I'm not a radical in the, in the sense that I would, um, wouldn't re-nationalise absolutely everything, you right. know what I mean? I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be taking it that far, right. but um, my, my political beliefs not, didn't actually come out of the union, they just came out of me, they came right. out of the upbringing, right. they came out of my concern about things like the way the environment was being destroyed right. by pollution, growing mountains of rubbish that were getting sent to landfill, yeah. nuclear power stations. Did that educate you, you think, that whole being part of that? Yes. About how society is organised, etc. How, how well, what, what the independence campaign did for me was mm -hmm. it opened my eyes to a lot of the, the real injustices that have been going on right. and the lies that have been told for right. decades okay. to the people of Scotland for so long that people actually believe it now. Mm -hmm. you know, and this, uh, but how did you learn that? You know, I mean, we've got social media now, we've got the internet, we've got the web. It's so easy to find out stuff, even if there's a variety of different stories. I knew uh, prior from to that. years ago from reading works of people like Frank Zappa right. that that's, that's the media <laughs> was connected to the establishment. Right. Okay. The establishment used the media to control the population. Right. Uh, and I Who remember Zappa's... One of the, the things that stuck in my mind from reading his, his um, comments and his uh, articles was... When, when somebody is telling you a piece of news on the television, don't just say, oh, right, that's, that's the news. Ask yourself, who's telling me this piece of news? Yeah. And why do they want me to know this particular yeah. piece of news yeah, yeah. and not some other bit of news that's maybe happening somewhere else? Mm -hmm. And once you start thinking that way, mm -hmm. you start to see that television isn't just a window on the world. Yeah, it, they're also setting the agenda in some sense. It's a channel to yeah. feed the information that the political establishment wants you to see yeah. so that they create a, 
a polarised situation where you can either go for X or Y, but there are no other choices being shown to you. And that is the problem with, with television and radio and the newspapers, is that it is the media that tells you what the choices are. You, you don't see them yourself. Mm-hmm. You're only seeing a very narrow field of what they're permitting you to know about. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to know about things that you could do. They just want you to know about the things they want you to choose. So most people don't know they're being manipulated in this No, they, they don't. Uh, but it's, it's unusual to be educated by Frank Zappa, I have to say. That's, that is unusual. very interesting books. <laughs> yeah. My dad was famous for passing me really strange books. He, he passed me The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins right. when I was a younger man. That right, changed okay. my entire view. Right, OK. okay. I was a very... Not devout, yeah. wasn't Catholic or anything like that. I wasn't really a, a practicing Protestant even. Right. But I had quite a strong Christian faith at one time. Right. And that book just made me think, hang on a minute, all the stuff that I'm believing here and I'm forcing to fit the reality of mm-hmm. the world could just be that I'm forcing this to fit the reality that yeah. this isn't actually true. Mm-hmm. It took me about two or three years from that point on to realise that I don't believe this stuff anymore. Right. And that just just flipped me from being right. very much a believer to very much an atheist. Right, okay. okay. And I've never gone back on that. And is that in the mix now, do you think? It uh, is. It is. It is because uh, I think everybody should look at books like that. Everybody uh-huh. should read that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, to see that what you're being asked to believe in or what you're being told is true it's not necessarily true you're just being told that it's true it's being impressed on you that it must be true and and in fact there is absolutely no proof whatsoever of any of it not Mm -hmm. even there's no proof of the existence Mm -hmm. even of Jesus Mm -hmm. they think he might be based on two or three different people Mm -hmm. and so religion to me I thought well if it's not true then it's caused a hell of a lot of trouble over the last few centuries for something which isn't even Mm -hmm. real. So I thought, well, whatever I do now and whatever I do on the blog now, I need to sort of rise above that level Mm -hmm. and get through to people on some different level. It's not anything to do with religion or faith. I I don't necessarily try to mock people who believe because people believe things very strongly. But believing something doesn't make it true. No, that's true. That's absolutely true. I mean, it's funny listening to your, your kind of journey to, you know, yeah. thinking about it like that, because I went in a more traditional way. I did politics at university. Fair enough. <laughs> politics and economics, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I studied people like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. You can read about I did sociology. <laughs> You so, don't need to read very far into yeah. it either to discover. So, so you discover about uh, how society is organised and you know the inequality that's built in uh, and it kind of opens your eyes to it. There was a book called Bad News and More Bad News which tells you yeah. all about the media and how the media works and stuff. So you get, I got it from an academic sort of set yeah. of books. Chomsky is another one. That yeah, that's right. Uh, which, which informed me, my attitudes to, yeah. to a lot of this, which then opens my mind up a wee bit, I suppose, to... I mean, I, say, I would say to somebody, and I mean, I'm quite kind of uh, adamant, I'll say, don't, don't believe a single thing you read in any newspaper, including... The, the football scores. <laughs> don't believe any of it. <laughs> no, not true. But if we can go back just slightly, because that, that, that whole independent stuff on your, right. your video, I'm interested in, you know, the start of that, how it developed. The genesis of yeah, IndyCar. Yeah, yeah. Genesis of IndyCar was, came out of shame more than anything else. Right. I had a young pupil, a young girl, who I was teaching at the time, and she was going off to university after mm-hmm. she'd finished the driving course. And I said, what are you going to study? She said, well, I'm going to study politics and, uh, and law. Right. At, uh, I can't remember if it was Glasgow or, or Edinburgh universities, but it was a good university. Mm-hmm. I said, that's great. She said, yes, yeah, so, and uh, Nicola Sturgeon is my role model. She said, I, I want to go into politics and I want to be like her. Right. And I thought, this girl is 17 years old. And I'm thinking I'm sitting in the car blogging 
like hey, this girl of 17 is showing me up here, you know, she's right. got ambitions to be a politician, yeah. to actually do something at 17, and I'm wasting my time here, wasting my words typing into my phone, and right. I could be doing something better than this. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was, I was actually sitting in the car at lunchtime one day, and I was just feeling miserable, because I, I, I thought, I don't know how I can be any more effective than I already am mm-hmm. with what I'm trying to do. But I felt at the time, like a lot of people, that we were talking to ourselves in a bubble. Mm-hmm. You know, that we were in an echo chamber into which other we people still to didn't extent, go. You know. And I thought, we need to get outside yeah. this bubble yeah. somehow. Uh, and I shortly after that, I realised that there was this app, new app on Facebook, mm-hmm. which allowed you to live stream and I'd never been brave enough to switch it on. Right. <laughs> because it meant actually uh, talking into the camera yeah. live and putting it out into the internet yeah. for people to watch. And I wasn't sure whether I was brave enough to do that. So I, I went and had a cup of coffee and I came back and I said, just plucked up the courage to have a go at it. Mm-hmm. So I just pressed the record button and set the camera on the dashboard mm-hmm. and just started talking to it like I've been talking to you right okay and all of this came out right and um, 20 minutes later I switched it off and went back to work and I thought probably I don't know maybe a dozen of my friends might see <laughs> yeah. it you know and maybe comment on it and have a laugh about it uh, and when I went back in later that afternoon 16,000 people had watched it I mean, it got kind of not exactly viral but it had spread yeah. very quickly yeah that's amazing and I thought that's incredible yeah because I didn't really realise what I'd said I couldn't even remember half of what yeah, I said yeah. and I thought this is a very powerful medium we have to be so careful with this yeah yeah you know, and I went to bed that night got up the next day and the the viewing figures on that same post had gone up over 69,000 at that point oh my goodness and I thought <laughs> you know, this is incredible. So I, I didn't make another post for, for a while, for a few days, and people started to contact me saying, you must do another one, you've got to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. That was really amazing. Do yeah. it again, do it again. And so I started maybe doing a post every week or so. Right. And at first it was uh, just dealing with whatever subjects came up to yeah. do with, you know, campaigning. Whatever was in the news. Sort of yeah, thing. and and it... Because we'd lost the, the referendum at that point, everybody was feeling very down. And I thought, we only need to get people mm-hmm. lifted and start fighting back, you know? And, and that was where it began. Uh, I mean, see, I'm not absolutely sure when I started watching, but when I did start watching it, one of the things that struck me was actually the amount of information and the amount of research that you appear to have done you have uh, to. to form your opinions. Yeah, you have and, to uh, do that, though. Yeah. Well, not everybody does, because a lot of people they come on the telly and just talk whatever happens to you in the top of their head, you know, they don't but necessarily... But you think this is a problem you know? with television, you only get a sound bite. Yeah. You get one bit of information, yeah. and somebody reiterates it over and over again, yeah. and they go through the pleasantries, and it's, thank you very much for your interview, on to the next one. Yeah. It, it's not like, um, you're not learning much from no. that. So, we, I devised a format, actually... In, uh, Independence Live, the guys over there in Govan who who free who live stream all the, the big events. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to one of their seminars because I'd been invited to talk about how to live stream to right. a group of people. Okay. So we did that workshop and out of that, uh, David McGowan said to me, he said, I've analysed your show and how it works. He said, and how you do it. He said, you may not have thought about it. He said, but you spend about four or five minutes on each topic and then move swiftly on to the next one, and then on to the next one. And I said, all your shows fit into roughly 10 to 20 minutes in length, mm-hmm. and usually split them either into two or three segments. And he said, you've got a format that you go through and repeat endlessly over and over every day. Mm-hmm. And I said, because it's short enough that people's attention is held, and it contains things that they're interested in hearing about in mm-hmm. more detail, they're watching it. And they're watching it right. He said, it's hard to get people to watch something that's longer than 10 minutes yeah. on YouTube. 20 minutes is a push, mm-hmm. so it has to be really good. So, uh, having found that out from, from David's observations, I started to tweak it a little bit. So, he right. started writing theme tunes for me. Right. Someone else wrote a title sequence for it. And people started giving me stuff. Right. People started passing me stories. And developed a yeah, network well, yeah. of a network of stringers and yeah. story gatherers yeah. all over the place yeah. in all sorts of places. 
you know, in the halls of government and companies, right, okay. local authorities, you know, just people watching things that were going on in their yeah. areas and telling me what was happening. Insider view. The story thing. about Mandel's power grab came from the inside. Yeah, well, I was watching it when, when that was pretty hot. I was watching your version of all... That, came, that came from yeah. somebody inside the Scottish Civil Service. Right, OK. Yeah. Um, who saw what was going on and saw... The Don't tell me any secrets, by the way, because no, no. this will be going out. <laughs> this, this, is, this, is, uh, got, this will always remain in confidence. But yeah. the point was that this was somebody who saw that the Scotland office was poaching staff from the Scottish government's departments right. and offering them big money to switch right. sides. Oh, right, OK. It wasn't just that they were building a new building and yeah. staffing it and creating this hub, as they called it. Yeah. This was the cover. The real story was it's a, a government, a shadow government, mm-hmm. being run by David Mundell. That, that's the whole point of it. Mm-hmm. He has to be in place for after Brexit. Mm-hmm. So they're ready when the time comes to shut Holyrood down, because that's what the Tories want mm-hmm. to do. They want to shut it. Mm-hmm. They want to centralise power, because Brexit is going to cripple the place. And they need all the the control that they can get. Mm-hmm. If it was me, if I was in charge of, of the United Kingdom at the moment, I'd probably do the same thing. I would shut down these peripheral um, local governments because mm-hmm. they they would be creating problems for you. Yeah. If you're trying to hold together some kind of empire and you've got fractious many governments around you which won't agree with you, you you're basically hide behind. You can't do much. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends what you're... Uh, how you see the world, and uh, you know, well, obviously, if you're a from, Tory, obviously, think of it from a London Tory point of view, yeah, from a London Tory point of view, that's absolutely correct. But if you had a more of a, a community, you know, the, 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 Toryism is about you know, the individual, and you know, we're all fighting for a piece of the cake, you know, and it's a competition, you know, the strongest will prevail. Uh, and let's kill off all the weak folk because they're just dragging their heels anyway. And this is start, it's Darwinian <laughs> yeah, survival so, of the so fittest. And if you put that opinion. point of view, I'm not saying that's an absolute uh, description of it, so don't don't need to come back and tell me that's not exactly how how it works, Jim. Uh, (laughs) It's a caricature. Uh, Then clearly what you're saying fits that pretty damn well. But if you're more kind of, we're all equal and we should be helping each other, then you could have a more uh, community-driven approach to the the devolution and the different countries and you could be helping each other and you could have a kind of notion that well, that could work is, but that's obviously not what's happening and you it's have not to happened. remember the history of devolution yeah. was it wasn't a Tory idea it was a Labour idea but yeah. it was a Labour idea that came from SNP members yeah. who campaigned for it in Europe with the Council right. of Europe got Council of yeah, Europe to actually do something yeah. Council of Europe said to Tony Blair mm-hmm. you need to set up these regional governments in Scotland right. Ireland and Wales okay uh, if you're, you're going to be successful as a European nation integrating into mm-hmm. the Maastricht Treaty and all the rest of it. Right. And so Blair did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Tories railed against it. They, they refused yeah. to cooperate with it. Yeah. Uh, everyone else liked the idea. But it's that 20% of Scotland that just can't accept that we should be running our own affairs. Yeah. I mean, it's a strange It is 20%. It's, it's right. stubborn. Yeah. It won't change. The yeah. Tories will not change. Yeah. And those who believe in the union, that 20%, will never convince them otherwise. No. There's no point in trying to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I can respect them for yeah. it. It's their opinion. Yeah. Well, you can't can change people. You know, they're always. Just that they wouldn't change my mind. On both sides it. of the fence, there are people whose opinions will never change no matter what. You know, what, you know. Sh- I used to believe that the United <laughs> Kingdom was a, a, a noble sort of goal to have, you know, mm-hmm. to, to have a country made up of four countries. Yeah. That goal got along and were relatively yeah. equal. But the thing is, A, we're not all equal, and B, we don't always get along because we're not equal. Yeah, that, well, that's, that, of course, <laughs> is the thing about it. If every country had equal representation, yeah. it would be different. I knew when I tell you, I knew when I was going to chat to you that the danger was that we'd end up going ranting. <laughs> oh yeah, we're going to rant. Of course, we're going to rant uh, because we've, we've got an opportunity yeah, that's to true. say what we think. That's true, absolutely. But that's the beauty of the internet, and that is why this is such a powerful medium. Yeah. Because people can rant on it. Not yeah. only can they rant on it, they can have other people comment on their yeah. rants, and if the rant is a good one, yeah. it spreads. Yeah, I mean, I only mean, mean like on this particular podcast, you know, uh, 
because I thought we don't want to get caught up in spending 20 minutes just no, but being I mean, angry. You you know? I'm sure you can uh, edit some of yeah, the things yeah. out. Yeah. Um, no, anyway, so one of the things that was in my head before, I, before yeah. I got in touch with was there's this thing called Be The Media, I'm sure you're aware yes. of. Right. And do you think of yourself as part of that sort of movement? Is that a movement or is it, you know, like a... Which is this notion that the, the sort of mainstream media are pumping be, stuff be, out? Be the media is a, a strap line which encourages people to stop soaking up television. Yeah, and do it themselves. Sort of and thing. instead of doing that, to report on things that they see that are important to them. Yeah. You know, so if, if something happens outside your house, get your phone out, film yeah. it, and then present it yourself. Don't send yeah. it into the BBC yeah. or ITV, yeah. but actually stream it live before the television cameras can clean it up or right. edit out the okay. bits that they don't okay. want anyone to see. Yeah. And that's where the power of this is because unlike domestic television media, you cannot edit a live stream. And because you can't edit it, yeah. it's live television in the sense that it used to be in the 60s yeah, when things right. went out live, they couldn't change it. You had to get it right. It would go out with mistakes, with wobbly mm-hmm. sets, people fluffing their lines, yeah, you know, yeah. or whatever it was, but it went out as it was, uncut. Mm-hmm. And people liked that. Yeah. It was honest. Now what we see is is airbrushed and engineered and it's edited. Engineered, that's for sure, yeah. And sometimes you'll see in political um, reporting, if there's a, a person who whose views they don't want to broadcast, they'll broadcast that person talking at the meeting with the sound off and voice over the top of it, yeah. saying they want you to think of this person. Yeah, this person yeah. said a whole lot of terrible stuff today. Here they are in the background. <laughs> you can't hear what they're saying, but trust me, they're talking a lot of rubbish and you don't really want to believe them. Yeah. This is how it's done, you know, uh, and it's masquerading as news. Yeah. So did you did you think of yourself as, you know, or was this an influence on you or did you just think one day I'll, I'll do this? It wasn't sort of this Actually, it evolved on its yeah. own because I didn't intend it to be a news programme. Right, it just happened. It really was a kind of opinion polemic right. piece yeah. where I was just giving my own thoughts. Yeah. And then it started to be, I was reporting things that weren't getting into the papers. Right. And then I would offer a, an opinion on it or analysis of it. Yeah. So it, it then turned into sort of a, a, a shred of news coming out and then putting that together with what else was happening. Yeah. So people are telling you things. And, and drawing some kind of conclusion from the analysis. Yeah. So the programme became a kind of exercise in asking people to think about what they were seeing in relation to what has now been revealed on social media about it. Mm-hmm. In other words, adding social media to what they saw on the television and deciding whether what they're seeing on the television is actually true or not, or yeah. whether there is something deliberately left out there. Yeah. And once they start doing that on a regular basis, yeah. They start to question every single news item that yeah. they see. Well, exactly, which is why you end up with people like me who say don't even believe the. the it doesn't the, mean you the, need to be a scholar about everything. I mean, I I, yeah. I watch Al Jazeera and I watch RT, but I know mm. that RT is a, a, an overt propaganda. Well, exactly, they were, they're all overtly. They're always adverts for the latest yeah. wonderful Russian weaponry yeah. that can wipe America off the face of the earth. You know, there's always some new technology yeah, only Russia is doing and there's argument. always some wonderful thing that Russia is doing to help the poor somewhere in somebody else's yeah. country so, so it is very much these, these are propaganda but I say well they are but, but that's why you need to watch them because you need to have a range of different viewpoints you do and, and you they've all understand why they're telling you things in yeah. one country and exactly so if you're not watching these things and you're only watching one uh, you know getting your your news from one source you're only getting one propaganda channel yeah. you need to have a I, number I, of propaganda I actually think channels. Al Jazeera are probably the most balanced of them all right. between Western media and, and RT Al Jazeera is far more neutral right. uh, I don't know why it is but it is far more neutral yeah, they have a lot of English they have a lot of Englishmen and women mm-hmm. as reporters right. they do a good job as well mm-hmm. so who knows but, I mean for me I just try and um, bring any items of news that haven't made it into the press mm. to light uh, and try and round up whatever nonsense has been yeah. spouted by the usual media. And there's never any shortage of things to say. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, they spew out this stuff endlessly. Yeah. Um, and I know that Wings Over Scotland's taken a bit of a doing recently from the BBC, trying to smother them by 
deliberately uh, causing Facebook to shut them down. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I actually, I was reading something this morning. I, I assume you've already you already know about it, but the yeah. complaint came. From it wasn't Facebook, sorry. It was uh, yeah. YouTube. I always get these two mixed up when I talk about them. Yeah, I didn't notice that because I watched the one you were talking about. It was YouTube. I got it wrong. Instead of YouTube. Um, yeah, I issued that. Put a little disclaimer yeah. in front of that video saying I'd got that wrong. But it was a complaint from a, a Labour councillor. Did you read that? About that that the BBC. Uh-huh. took on board and then made the complaint on YouTube uh, yes. so that's where it came from they're saying uh, people complained well who complained one, Labour Councillor complained Labour Councillor <laughs> so the BBC yeah. shut, shut them shut. down or got them it made 13 down. complaints and 13 different videos knowing that of course that was see the thing the is the BBC usually loves it when people replay their videos because yeah. it gets BBC message out even further, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. But when somebody starts taking them apart with with a pair of tweezers and a, and a scalpel right. saying, "This is what the BBC is really yeah. telling you here," they don't like that at all. Yeah. Well, or you know, it might yeah. just be a politician yeah. and they're just going over what he actually said before yeah. the tape was edited for the second cut. Yeah. You know. Well, Windsor of Scotland is a, is a, it's like a a good example of how the mainstream media demonises the individual and doesn't attack the message, <laughs> if you know what no. I mean. doesn't attack the facts, the figures and the and stories. The was all Alec, that Alex Salmon. Yeah, exactly. So it's all about demonising the individual. Yeah. And, you know, when uh, Nicholas Sturgeon became the uh, leader of the SNP, I said to Pat, my wife, it won't take that long before they've destroyed oh, yeah. their credibility. You know, the mainstream media uh, uh, will, from tomorrow, start printing stories about Nicola Sturgeon yeah. <laughs> uh, which are of negative nature oh yes they're um, all going on about her expenses yeah which are exactly the same as every other first minister's expenses where you know but it's because it's Nicola Sturgeon she's wasting yeah. taxpayers money yeah I mean it's just the way they work you know, it's just, and it's, it's just to be expected best features of the independence movement is it's so unpredictable yeah. and it has no leader if it had a leader yeah then the, the press would go to title on that person and well, that's correct. You know, you've got the all under one banner. So many thing. of us doing so yeah. many different things yeah. makes it very hard for them to hit us with anything other than silly kind of hold-ups or alterations to march yeah. and things like that that make it a bit more awkward, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the reason that... I mean, people working down in London, the BBC, think of... Uh, SNP supporters or independent supporters as extremists, you know. Because that's what they're told about. Yeah, because, you know, what they've got are, are normal, sensible attitudes uh, as, you know, BBC employees and anybody... And so, so they're not being biased. All they're doing is making sure that uh, they uphold what's right and, and normal. We have to so, re- yeah, we have to remember that the BBC is a British broadcaster. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, it can only broadcast a British perspective. Yeah, and it's in their chapter to... Yeah to uh, you know express Britishness and bring people together so what does that mean from their point of view it means that it's just suppress things that don't do that <laughs> so it's in their charter uh, so you, when you complain and I have complained in the past yeah, you'll get something back that will never satisfy you of course because they're just they're doing our job the BBC cannot change itself no that's right it is what it is and you know we can't blame it for being what it is no, that, that, exactly it's what it has to be it's yeah. British it's an institution yeah created by the British government where the taxpayers pay for their own propaganda, which is the best arrangement you could possibly have in any country yeah, for propaganda. Absolutely. It's self-financing. self-financing. Do they need to advertise? Yeah. Wonderful. You know. And that in itself, of course, is a, is a scandal that we have to pay uh, for something we don't want. <laughs> there's, an, there's an argument online about that at the moment as well, about a woman who's been incarcerated in jail in Northern Ireland for not getting yeah, a television licence. And yet, only in Northern Ireland is it a criminal offence right. where you can be jailed for it. Right, okay. Although I think there was one woman years ago in Scotland who was going to be sent to jail for it. Right. And that was, I think it was appealed and she right. escaped a custodial sentence. Right. But, you know, if, if, they, if it's so illegal not to have a licence, you would think thousands of people would be in jail by now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what I think about it. I think that... Uh, it's a bit like saying you have to have yeah. a driver's licence, even though you don't drive a car. Yeah, that's right. You certainly shouldn't be forced to pay just because you have a television, which is exactly what they're saying at the moment. If the BBC had any sense at all, it would become a subscription-only channel like Sky, Yeah. where you pay a monthly fee 
to watch only BBC programmes. And if you don't, then you don't get the signal. Yeah, well, that, that would suit me fine. I mean, I'm, so I would rather that. people would case. be quite happy yeah. with that. Um, um, but to be able to choose... Yeah, absolutely. Why, why do you have to pay the BBC to watch ITV? It doesn't make any sense to anybody. Yeah, that's right. You've yeah. got to pay if you've got a television. That's it, exactly. Yeah. But YouTube is helping to democratise that as well. Yeah. And other, uh, other platforms that allow you to watch or stream yeah. television programmes later. Yes. Um, On-demand TV, on exactly, demand. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, there's a lot to be, a lot to be done. <laughs> Too much. Yeah, I think we've probably well, got we've to the end of our, our breath on this one. So thanks very much for coming and chatting to me. You're welcome. Uh, but no, it's been really interesting. It's good. I mean, it's, I'm always amazed people's stories. You know, I had no clue about your your hang glider and your... Uh, <laughs> your most strange, you know, probably the strangest yeah. career path of anybody. Yeah, that's a pretty strange career path, you know. Go from, you know, sailing and hang gliders yeah. to, to rockets and yeah, spacecraft and then down to the art school, yeah. you know, and then to driving instructor. Exactly. I mean, you can imagine a, a weirder career path than any of that. As I say, I can, I mean, I, I, almost <laughs> like a YouTube sort of star in some sense, you know. Well, I don't know about a star, it's just... Um, the guy in the car with a phone. Basically. Yeah, well, you know, you, a lot of people know you, a lot of people listen to you. Anyway, I'm just going to hit this, this button to stop it. Okay. okay, thanks a lot. You're welcome. And thus ends another episode of Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End Chat. Thanks, Gordon. I really enjoyed our chat. Uh, as I said earlier on, there's, I'm intended to put out an extended version. We did, uh, we did talk for a wee while and got all hit up, of course, about uh, Scottish independence. So if you fancy that, I'll stick that out in the next few days. Okay, catch you later. Bye.